0: I invite you to please take your Bibles and join me in Isaiah chapter 53 and also John 19. Last week we covered the agonies of the crucifixion and what a torturous death it, it was to die by means of crucifixion. And Jesus did it all so that sinners could be reconciled to God, amen? And What's hard to comprehend is that on top of it all, Jesus was bearing the sin of the world upon Himself, and I don't think we could ever understand what all Jesus endured. But hallelujah, He did. Amen. Amen. Thank God He was sinless, yet He died a sinner's death. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of this love, which God has towards Sinners in dying in our place, God's love is never to be questioned. Amen. I'm going to recap what I was talking about last week here, real quick. God's love isn't the question. And yet, one of the most common objections of God by the lost, and frankly, even some that claim to be saved, how can a loving God allow people to suffer in hell? I can't recap all that we covered last week, but there's no question about God's love, but rather the question is, how can God, who is absolutely just, completely holy, allow sinners into His presence without punishing their sinfulness? Well, we know the answer is Christ took that punishment for us. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. God did punish sin, but He did so in the person of Jesus Christ, God Himself. I didn't read this last week, but this passage fits very nicely. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And all we have to do is put our faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, believing that His blood has purchased our salvation. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Amen. And I just want to mention this again. I've stated it many times in the past. But this is what separates true Bible Christianity from man's religion. In religion, man is always trying to reach their view of who God is. Always trying to work their way up. Always trying to appease some God, some deity. But not so in Christianity, amen. God said, I know you can't make it to me, so I'm going to come down to you. Amen. 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 And so in coming down to us, He paid the price. And Christ appeased the wrath of God for us. Hallelujah. God is eternally satisfied. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.26, There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. (laughs) That's it. There's nothing you can add to it. Hallelujah. Some will make this observation, and I've heard this discussion by some. Well, it sounds like God is saving us from Himself. If God is saving us from His wrath, then we're being saved from God, by God. Well, I understand that, and there probably is an element of truth to that. But in reality, you needed God to save you from yourself. Because even man, when He was created in the beginning... Adam and Eve had a free will to choose, and they didn't choose what was right. Neither did we. Amen. We're no different. And so we have to be saved from ourselves because even put in a perfect environment, we would go astray because we're sinners. After sin entered the world, man rebelled against God, and we rightly deserved God's wrath for sinning against Him. But God paid the debt we could never pay. He paid a price that he never owed. How anyone could dare question God's love is beyond me. And how anyone could reject such a loving and merciful Savior in favor of one of the world's religions, it's hard to comprehend. Over the last three weeks, I've opened with a reading from the Old Testament I've enjoyed doing that. I think it's neat for us to see some of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's crucifixion as we are currently in that time of Jesus' life. And today I want to open up with Isaiah 53, probably the most familiar of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's sufferings. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. and The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before His shearers is dumb, so He openeth not His mouth." He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Catch this next phrase. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Go over to John chapter 19, please. We'll open again in verse 16 as we have the last several weeks here. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, the Bible says, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified Him and two other with Him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. They said, Therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which say, If they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots, these things, therefore, the soldiers did." Now, when you compare the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion, you find a lot of different details that are mentioned. When you put them all together, you get the big picture. Why did God choose to do it this way? It's His inspired Word. Couldn't He have just put it all together? Well, I reckon, but I believe He wanted us to study His Word. Amen. Amen. We're excited about that this morning. And so we ought to be in the Word of God, and I believe those who will take the time to study it will be the ones who will be the most blessed by it. And so I'm not sure why it was done this way. Maybe that's the reason why. But I've already mentioned two details that we have covered that are not found here in John. Two weeks ago, we considered Jesus' prophetic warning when He turned to the ladies that were mourning Him as He was bearing His cross up to Golgotha. And he, he turned to them and He gave them the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. And He gave them this warning, Don't weep for me but weep for yourselves. And last week, I mentioned how Matthew and Mark both point out how Jesus was offered vinegar mixed with myrrh. This was used as a type of sedative in those days, but Jesus, the Bible says He refused it. He was going to drink of the cup that His Father gave Him to drink from, and He was going to taste death for every man. And certainly, we'll see later on as He's having the conversation with this thief on the cross, this was not some medicated state, but we are getting... Um, his mind on the matter, and so we'll cover that another time. And we've come to the place now where these details that we come across, they're a little harder to uh, look at in sequence with all the Gospels because some will mention one thing, then another, and vice versa. They're all saying the same thing. They're just mentioned slightly different. And so as we're going verse by verse through John, it's hard sometimes to chronologically capture those other events that we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, For example, we see in verse 18 that John mentions the two men that were crucified on each side of Christ, and he mentions Jesus' garments being parted among the soldiers. Well, when you go to Matthew and Mark, they first mention the parting of the garments, then the accusation, and then the two that were crucified with them. So you see what I'm trying to say? There's a little bit of a a stacking of a difference there. Luke mentions the two others, then the parting of Jesus' garment, then the accusation above Jesus' head. But then Luke records a conversation between Jesus and the thief on the cross. And so I'm telling you all that to say, we're going to skip verse 18 for now, but we will come back to it as we get later in the chronological events of this, uh, of the crucifixion. We'll, we'll cover that. And so what we find is some variations here. Uh, for example, John's the only one that mentions the seamless coat. They all mention his garments being parted and casting lots for, but John makes special. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. And, um, John mentions these other two being crucified. We're just going to pass that. And I I probably should have just said we're just going to bypass verse 18. But I thought I'd make it as confusing as I possibly could (laughs) and as difficult as I could. Amen. So forget everything I just said. We're skipping verse 18. Uh, We'll come back to that later. So let's begin today by considering this title that Pilate placed above the head of Jesus. And let's once again read these verses here in verse 19. Verse 19. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, I mentioned last week how the Romans would place a charge above the condemned on the cross, to show people who would pass by and read the sign what crime they had committed in order to hopefully deter further crimes. So apparently we need something out of the parking lot that talks about not stealing catalytic converters. For some reason that has happened now. Happened to Breck. Now it's happened to our church. But we don't have a deterrent in these days, amen? We don't have somebody strapped to a catalytic converter out there to show don't do this. But... They would have this very torturous death out there in the open for everybody to see, the accusation above the head, and it was hopefully to be an effective deterrent. What I find amazing is you would think that a torturous death like crucifixion happening out in the public would have been a deterrent. And yet, many were crucified frequently. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm all for deterrence. I say, bring back the chain gang. That don't bother me one bit to see people out there cleaning up the highways. Bring back deterrence. I'm all for it. But what's interesting when we think about it is man is absolutely depraved apart from God. Even with crucifixions out in the open and the accusation accusation written above the head, don't you know there were still people doing it? How sad. And so... I would imagine it would deter some, but it wouldn't deter all because this is man. Apart from God, we're sinners and we're going to do what we want to do. There are some who will never learn from the open punishment of others. Now, I'm thankful I got to watch my older sister learn from her. Amen. I was thankful for that. I'll just leave it there in case she ever watches. But some people, don't you know, they have to learn the hard way. They just have to take the hard path. They don't want to listen to anybody. They just want to live in rebellion, living against God. But doesn't it break your heart when you have to watch it? Ask a parent. Oh, it hurts to watch someone we love take the long, painful journey to the hog pen in a faraway country. Look at their father and say, give me my inheritance. You know what he's basically saying? You got to your inheritance when the parent was dead. I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. Took his inheritance, went to the hog pen. Well, long story short, ended up in the hog pen. And it was there that God broke his heart. And it's hard sometimes to know in the ministry and as parents. How much do we let a person suffer and how much do we bail them out? Sometimes we bail them out. We're actually hindering what God's doing in their life. That's hard to know. And it takes great discernment, a lot of prayer, but... Listen, it hurts to watch people go through that until they finally come to themselves and truly desire to get their heart right. Amen. We'll see people come in, profess to get their heart right, but it's not long. And they have to be broken. So this placard is placed above Jesus' head on the cross. All could read it. And we see the accusation that's written against our Lord. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What's Pilate supposed to write? What what accusation is he supposed to give to a man that he's already declared innocent? What's he going to put? I find it interesting that he didn't put guilty of sedition. If that was the crime, if that was the charge, why don't we find that here? One thing for sure, he, he couldn't have wrote Jesus of Nazareth, an innocent man. That wouldn't look good. So what do you write against a man who's innocent? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I believe it's probably meant to convey sedition. I think that might be what's being said. I don't know. Remember in verse 12 of this chapter, Pilate goes out and he wants to release Jesus and the crowd cries out and they say, if you let this man go, you're not a friend of Caesar." Anyone who makes himself a king is no friend of Caesar. And that's got to be on Pilate's head to some degree. And we see in verse 20 that because Jesus was crucified near the city, many of these Jews, as they're coming to the city, they would be able to read this title and they would be able to... See what the accusation was. Now, I, I ended last week in Romans 3 where Jesus was put on open display to the world. And there He is. He's out there in this main through fair. He's out there on the way to Jerusalem. And don't you know, it's Passover week. And there are tens of thousands of people flowing into Jerusalem from the known world where all the Jews had been scattered and all the house of Israel had been scattered. And they're out there and they're coming in to celebrate Passover. Some people put the number into the hundreds of thousands. And all these people are coming in and as they make their way into the city, they, they knew of Jesus, they heard of Him, they knew of His fame. And then they walk by and there it says on the cross above His head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What do you think that did to their minds? But as we see in verse 21, the chief priests don't like that too much. We don't like that he, you wrote that He's the King of the Jews. We want you to change it to where it says, but He said He was the King of the Jews. Even with Jesus on the cross, they still try their best to disown Jesus and separate themselves from any association with His kingship. Don't write that He is the King of the Jews, but that He said He is the King of the... You know what they're saying? This isn't our King. We don't own Him as a King. I found this interesting, just a side note here. Jesus never took to Himself the title, the King of the Jews. In fact, in John 6, after Jesus feeds the multitude there miraculously... The Bible says that he perceived that they were going to come and take him by force to make him a king. And what did Jesus do? He withdrew himself and he went up into the mountain alone to pray. Amen, my kind of guy. Into the mountain alone to pray. There's no question that he's the king of kings. But... Why He never explicitly took the title the King of the Jews to Himself is a whole other message. The wise men who came from the East, they came asking, where is He that is born King of the Jews? Now they asked for the right motive. They had come to worship Jesus. Pilate asked, art thou the King of the Jews? Jesus replied, thou sayest. Pilate asked the crowd, will you therefore that I... uh, Release unto you the King of the Jews. And they cried out, We have no king but Caesar. The Roman soldiers, in mocking Jesus, bowed before Him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. It's interesting to me how the Gentiles called Jesus the King of the Jews out of contention and how the wise men called Jesus King of the Jews out of love, but the religious Jews never did either. The chief priests, the scribes, the council. Isn't that interesting? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And I love how God weaves together our series. And Wednesday night, we're going through Philippians, and we'll be at this passage very soon. Philippians 1 15 through 18 says, Paul writing there says, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add to my affliction. To my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice and will rejoice. Find that an interesting take by Paul. Well, after going to Pilate and seeking for him to change the title from the King of the Jews to He said, I am the King of the Jews, Pilate tells him in verse twenty two, What I have written, I have written. Now, I believe Pilate here, he's at his tipping point, eh, amen? I think he's just getting a little fed up with the whole situation. He's probably a little frustrated with the chief priest by this point. They woke him up early in the morning to hear this case in which they brought no accusation against him. He declares Jesus innocent. He sends Jesus to Herod. He declares him innocent, Herod says him back to Pilate. Pilate declares him innocent again. He has his back and forth with Jesus as they're talking. Jesus has given them those answers that probably frustrated Pilate even further. And now, here they come saying, change it, we don't want it to say the king of the Jews. And Pilate just said, what I have written, I have written. I think he's just done. Where was this backbone earlier by Pilate? We have seen earlier in this process how Pilate had no backbone because of how he treats an innocent man. He declared him innocent but didn't release him. Now all of a sudden... We find Pilate with some backbone. What gives? Well, as I have highlighted throughout this since chapter 18, God is in complete control. God is sovereign. God knows how to move in the hearts of men, even evil men, to convey His message to the world. And I believe that's what we're seeing here with Pilate. All of a sudden, he's got backbone. Why didn't he say, what I have declared, I have declared, he's a free man. Now all of a sudden, he bows up. Remember in verse 11 that Jesus told Pilate, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. You see, it's God who ultimately sets up and brings down rulers of this world. Proverbs one says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he will. And as we see here, God's hand is turning Pilate's heart whithersoever he will. Yes, God gives us a free will, but there can come a point where God steps in. After all means have been exhausted, at times God will take over and do with our heart as He sees fit. For example, Moses goes into Pharaoh and he says, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And listen, it was only after Pharaoh said that did God say, I'm going to harden his heart? A lot of people think, well, Pharaoh had no control in the matter because God kept hardening his heart. Oh, no, no, no. God didn't harden his heart until Pharaoh rejected. Don't forget that. He was given an opportunity to be complicit. And he turned that down. He rejected God and his will. And so God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And I believe what we're seeing taking place here, God was working through Pilate's hard heart to bring about what this title needed to say Because this title above Jesus' head was meant to speak to the entire world. It was meant to speak to all of mankind. Don't ever underestimate God's ability to work His plans, His purposes, His will, through the wickedness of sinful man. You say, can God use our wicked leaders? Oh yeah. He sure can. He's always in complete control. And I I would say that ought to bring you a lot of peace today. Because we live in some uncertain times. But God knows. And He can turn a heart just as He would turn a river. We're told at the end of verse 20 that this was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And when I first started considering this, I found that an odd fact to know. Why tell us this? He could just say above it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Why tell us that these three languages were used... And if this was some kind of deterrent against the children of Israel of being insurrectionists, we know on Acts chapter 2, 50 days from our text, there's many languages, over a dozen, that are represented among the Jews. So why Hebrew, Greek, and Latin? We understand Hebrew would make sense in that regard because that was their language. But why Latin and Greek? Well, one easy reason is because those were the three main languages in the world, being spoken in that area, I should say, in their day. But I believe there's more to it. And it's the emphasis that I want to end with today. When we consider the three languages that Pilate wrote this statement, um, in using those three languages, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, what we'll find is it encompasses all of humanity, not just then, but also now. And first, we must understand this about this title. For one to be born king of the Jews was to admit that he was the Messiah. They understood the Messiah to be a king. That's why they were looking for an earthly kingdom. And so even for the wise men to come and say, where is he born king of the Jews? They're saying, where is the Messiah? We know that the Messiah will be a king. And so unbeknown to Pilate, the title that he puts up there is a fulfillment of Scripture, because Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah. He would be of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And He would be born Messiah. He would be born a king. And the man suffering on the cross is the fulfillment of God's holy word. The king did come. The, when Jesus started preaching, He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not only him, but also the apostles, John the Baptist. They all started with, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom was on the way. They were looking for an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Now, certainly, Jesus will reign a thousand years upon this earth, and there will be an earthly kingdom. But right now, the Bible says the kingdom of God is within you. It is righteousness, joy, and peace. And so, in the mystery of the gospel... They were not thinking of a kingdom made up of all people. Right? They're looking for Hosanna. This one who's going to restore the kingdom of of David. They're not thinking, boy, we're going to bring in the Gentiles. Hallelujah. And yet, that's what's happening under this kingdom. It was the mystery of the gospel. It was Christ in you, the hope of glory. And God bringing the Gentiles and the Jews together and making one body. And now, we find every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Now, in understanding this, we get a better answer to why this title was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. God's going to bring them all into one. So to begin with, Hebrew represents the language of the religious man. The Hebrews had been blessed to have the oracles of God committed to them. They were to be the stewards of God's where They were the ones who were observing the sacrifices and all that we find under the Old Covenant. And they were the ones that were seeing Christ pictured and foreshadowed in these types and these sacrifices, all these things. But they had corrupted God's law. And they had chosen rather than God's law, they chose the traditions of men. And they had replaced being just through faith. You say, well, that's New Testament. Oh, no, Habakkuk says, the just shall live by his faith. It was always about faith. And they had replaced that with their traditions of religion. And they were believing that they could only be just through their religious observance. Therefore, what God is saying to the religious man, Christ on the cross, your ultimate sacrifice has come. Your ultimate price has been paid. God was never pleased with the blood sacrifices of animals. Amen. He would only be satisfied with Christ's blood. And all of those animal sacrifices, they only pointed to Christ. So to the religious man, God is saying righteousness has been established in Christ. Hallelujah. You can now come before God holy because of this man, God in the flesh. Jesus Christ giving Himself upon the cross. And you can come before God based on the merits of Christ and the righteousness of His blood because His blood's been applied. Whoop. Amen. I'll take a lap if I have to by myself. Amen. And listen, there isn't a list of religious observances for us to follow. God said you're going to observe the Lord's Supper and you're going to be baptized by immersion. There is not this checklist that we have to come through. There is not these religious sacraments that we have to observe. There is not some catechism that we have to follow. Yeah. It's not about you and your righteousness. Aren't you glad? Because as I've already said, man is depraved right. without God. In John 6, 28 and 29, we read, Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He has sent to believe on christ to the religious man god is saying put aside your religion stop it the blood has been offered up the price has been paid it was also written in greek greek was the latin of the philosoph- or the language of the philosophical man in search of wisdom we, we know the bible says that. i'll read it here in just a minute they were always in search of wisdom These are the ones who are always trying to think and reason their way through and find reason for life. What's going to happen? And why are we here? I think, therefore I am. And all this nonsense. But unfortunately, many will profess themselves to be wise and when in reality, they become fools. And God is saying to the philosophical man that you need to look no further for an answer about life and about God. Because the answer is found in Christ's sacrifice. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 24, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. But what do the Greeks seek after? Wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. (laughs) Under the Jews a stumbling block. Under the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hallelujah. Christ is the answer to the man seeking for wisdom. And lastly we see it was written in Latin. Latin was the language of Roman law. This was written in Latin for the legal man who's seeking for justice. God is saying to the legal man, justice has come in Christ. And as I preached last week and talked about a little bit when I opened up, God can now be merciful because His justice has been satisfied in Christ. The wrath which belonged to sinful man was taken by a just God in the person of Jesus Christ. He took what we deserved, and our death was His death. And I read this earlier, but First Peter 3.18, For Christ hath also suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That He might bring us unto God. <laughs> so what we see is that Christ, the religious man, in Christ has found His atonement. The philosophical man has found His answer. The legal man has found His justice. Therefore, the Bible says, Whosoever will may come and take of the water of life freely. What does that mean? He goes on to say, Every nation, kindred, tongue, people, everybody. Everybody finds their answer in Christ. And I wonder, can anybody here today see yourselves in one of these three groups? Perhaps you're still clinging to your religion as the means of your salvation. And you believe it's your religious observance and your religious goodness and the fact that you came to church and the fact that you checked your little box on the blue calendar for reading your Bible through in the year. And perhaps you think because I I gave so much to the church that somehow you're being saved by that. No, no, no. You've got to get rid of your religion and you've got to trust in Christ's blood. Amen. Amen. Because only He's the one that can save. And so I wonder, is there anybody here? And you say, I've been stuck in religion. I come to church because my parents bring me. What the preacher say? I had a drug problem when I was growing up. My parents drug me to church. Well, you let it get in your heart and that won't be the case anymore. Perhaps there are some who are still hanging on to their rationale. What you think salvation ought to be. How you think God ought to operate salvation. Well, I think God ought to make it to where if you were baptized as a baby, you're saved. Well, I think God ought to make it to where, if, you know what? If you're a pretty good person and your good works outweigh well, your bad, you ought to get in. No, no, no. You got the wisdom of the Greeks. Yeah. You're seeking after your own wisdom, not what the Bible says. Right. The Bible says you cannot trust in those things. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Maybe there's somebody here you're looking to legalism to be justified, and you think, boy, if I were just the right length of skirt and if I put my hair up in a bun just right and if you know guys if I wear a tie and a suit and let me tell you it's miserable amen and if I do all those things somehow in my legalism God is going to smile upon me and say enter thou into the joys of thy Lord oh no it's not about how snappy you are it's not about how many of man's checklists you can complete what you'll find at the end of every man's checklist you'll find no fulfillment It's only in Christ. Listen, friend, the only answer is in the King who died on a cross for you. He was buried and then he victoriously rose again the third day and then he ascended up to his Father. And now he sits at the right hand of God. Stop trusting in religion. Christ is the only answer for those seeking for truth. Let go of religion, let go of legalism, let go of your wisdom. But come to Christ, and all these areas will be quenched in Him. He's the answer. And then you'll conclude like Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Now we're going to pray now. If there's anybody in here that's not saved, boy, you need to get that right today. Amen? Maybe you're stuck in your religion. Maybe you're stuck in your legalism. Maybe you're stuck in your own wisdom. Let go and just find your answer in Christ. Let's pray.